information they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. It's a pleasure to have everyone joining us today from around the world. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. Dot com, that's ccfpeace.com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. We are glad to have all of you with us today in our public square once again, and joining us for this installment of our Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. If you've missed any of our other previous conversations, they can be found on our podcast and YouTube pages. Just visit our website for those links. Today, we're going to be discussing how Israel is covered in the national press, and it's going to be a really, uh, I think, interesting conversation for everybody. Please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I will try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of our discussion. Uh, we ask that you just please leave only questions in the Q&A section. Uh, all other comments and ideas can be emailed to us at info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. Uh, in conversation with me today is Mati Friedman. Mati is a former associate press correspondent in Israel, and his work as a reporter has also taken him to Lebanon, Morocco, Moscow, the Caucasus, and Washington, D.C. He has been a regular essayist for the New York Times opinion section, and his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Tablet Magazine, and elsewhere. Two of his articles inform what we'll be discussing today, What the Media Gets Wrong About Israel, that he wrote for The Atlantic, and an insider's guide to the most important story on earth that he wrote for Tablet. Um, he has also written a number of books, including Spies of No Country, the story of Israel's first intelligence agents in 1948 that received the 2018 Natan Book Award, and also the book Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier's Story of a Forgotten War that was chosen as New York Times notable book and was one of Amazon's 10 best books of that year. Mati's latest book is Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai, about the little known story of Leonard Cohen's concert tour on the front lines of the Yom Kippur War. Welcome, Mati. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, glad to have you here. First of all, congratulations on the release of your, your new book. Uh, it's always exciting when you finally get a piece of art uh, out into the world. As people that work in the entertainment industry, we understand the, the long hours and the many years it takes to put something like this out. Yes, once I compared it, I compared it to pregnancy and childbirth, until my wife told me that I was not allowed to say <laughs> that anymore. Um, so now I try other metaphors, but it feels like it's been a long, uh, long gestation and uh, I'm really happy to see it out in the world. I'll, I'll tell you what, I worked with, or I used to work with many female artists and uh, they would say the same thing. It really seems like a, a labor of love. Um, so just to ask a few questions about the book since it's such a wonderful read. Can you give us just a brief synopsis of the story or as us in the Hollywood folks like to say, you know, what's your elevator pitch? So uh, we might need a long elevator ride. It might be more than one or two stores, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it short. Um, in 1973, Leonard Cohen is already you know, kind of a legend, a 60s legend, but he's in a rut. Uh, his career has kind of hit a brick wall. He, he's announced that he's retiring 39 years old, which is a prime year for a male crisis. Uh, not that I know from experience. 
Um, he's living on a Greek island with a woman named Suzanne, who's not the Suzanne of the song Suzanne, but a different Suzanne. Um, and he has a, a child, his first child. So he's a new father and he feels unhappy. He's, he was pursued by depression for much of his life. And um, it was kind of a dark period for him. And at that very moment in the fall of 1973, war breaks out in Israel, the Yom Kippur War, maybe the darkest moment in the history of Israel. And at that kind of incredible moment of national crisis in Israel, Cohen sees a way out of his personal crisis and travels to Israel and ends up doing what has to be one of the greatest concert tours, certainly one of the strangest concert tours in the history of rock, which happens at the front of the Yom Kippur War over a period of several weeks in October 1973. And the book is a look at that, at that moment in Jewish history, a moment in music history, uh, kind of an interesting window into the mind of a, of a great artist in a kind of extreme context. Right, right. So what sort of impact did Leonard Cohen have on Israel as a country and on the soldiers who were fighting the Yom Kippur that he met along the way? The soldiers or many of the soldiers who saw Cohen at the front never forgot it because, first of all, it was just so weird that an right. international star like Cohen had showed up in the middle of the war and many of them could not understand what he was doing there or how he got to the front. I mean, it wasn't a Bob Hope situation, so he wasn't playing big bases in the rear where it was safe and he wasn't being kind of chauffeured around. He was um, at the edge of the front. At one point, he actually crosses the Suez Canal, which is... Um, really the line between the Egyptian and the Israeli armies and he's in danger and he's sleeping on the ground with the soldiers and he's wearing kind of a uniform or clothes that look like a uniform and he's eating combat rations and he's really with them and the soldiers who saw him sensed that he was authentically with them that he wasn't there exploiting them it wasn't a PR tour he wasn't accompanied by a camera crew the tour was not filmed we have no video of any of these concerts so it clearly wasn't a PR stunt by Cohen he was there Kind of as a pilgrim, he was there as an individual, and um, they sensed that he was really there with them. And and the concerts were incredible artistic moments because no money was changing hands. So right, no one's buying tickets, no one's selling records. Um, um, there's no crew, there are no groupies. It's 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 just pure art, at, and it's life and death, right? Because Cohen plays for these people, knowing that it might be the last thing they ever hear, wow. and that really charts kind of supercharges his art and ends up reinvigorating him and bringing him back from the brink of retirement. Because of course, Leonard Cohen doesn't retire when he's 39. He goes on to have you know, the most incredible career that lasts until he's 80. And had he retired in 73, we wouldn't have Hallelujah. You know, we wouldn't have If It Be Your Will or Dance Me to the End of Love or um, any, any other you know, number of amazing songs that change the history of music. So I think it's actually a pretty important moment for him, for music, and certainly for the state of Israel. Wow. Do many artists, is this is something that like occurs normally in Israel where artists are heading to the front lines in the middle of a war to, uh, you know, play for the soldiers? It seems like, you know, the Bob Hope days, it was like, you know, back safely at a base somewhere out of harm's way. So I think that's true. I mean, first of all, for Americans to go to the front, that means flying 8,000 miles away to Iraq or to Afghanistan or to Vietnam. Um, for Israelis, it literally involves getting into your car and driving for an hour or two, and then you're at the front because the country's so small. So it's very common. I mean, during a war, it's almost a tradition that performers appear at the front. And in the Yom Kippur War, Israel's biggest acts were touring the front. Not all of them got as close to the actual fighting as Cohen, but some of them did. And they were they were there. They, they were there with guitarists. You know, there's a great photograph of an Israeli singer named Yafa Yarkoni accompanied by an accordion player singing on top of an armored personnel carrier on the other side of the Suez Canal. Um, it's kind of an Israeli, an Israeli tradition. It's almost like a tax you pay as an artist for not fighting yourself. Like you're not a combat soldier, but what you're expected to do 
is, you know, take your guitar and get down to the front and try to raise morale. I don't think Cohen was aware of it when he came, but he kind of got sucked into that, uh, into that world, got taken down to the front by some Israeli musicians and ended up having a pretty incredible, and I think rattling and upsetting experience. Well, have you ever had any of your books optioned for movies yet? Um, yes, uh, my, my experience so far has been that they get optioned and then nothing ever happens, but, uh, <laughs> but to not, no offense to any, Welcome uh, to Hollywood, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but actually two, two of them are, are, are in active, I would say production. One is this one, um, who by okay, fire and one is the, the last one, which is called spies of no country, which is about Israel's first spies. And that too seems to be moving toward, I hope I don't want to jinx anything, but, um, Maybe we'll see it on the screen someday. Okay. If not, I think someone watching this will certainly pick it up and I'm going to make sure we do everything we can to get this story on the screen because it's amazing. And if anybody wants to hear more in-depth discussion about this fascinating story, I suggest they check out Mati's conversation with Barry Weiss on her recent podcast that was released last week. They did a really great deep dive um, on this episode in Israeli history, and you can hear some of the songs as they go. Um, so anyhow, shifting back to today's topic, Israel and how it's covered in the international press, Mati's done a lot of writing on this uh, in the past. So just to start off, to set the table sort of, what is the narrative you believe the international media tries to paint of Israel? And then on the other side, what is the narrative they try to paint of the Palestinians? So I think that, you know, for an audience of storytellers, which is what we have uh, here, it's, it's actually an easier explanation. I think that the news is much closer to fictional storytelling than, than we, we tend to acknowledge. We kind of want it to be closer to a science, but actually it's much closer to what I think most people on the call do for a living, which is create compelling stories. So a good news narrative is a compelling story, not necessarily an accurate story, but one that's compelling. What makes a story you know, particularly compelling? Basically, as close as you can get to a bedtime story with a princess and a dragon, that makes a news story as good as possible. And a good example is the one we're seeing play out right now, which is Russia, Ukraine. One reason that that's such a compelling story is because it has two players, which means that an average reader can kind of wrap their heads around it. There's right. more than two players and people kind of get confused. One player is bad and one player is good. And that makes it a really good news story and people can get really involved in it. Uh, it has a shelf life. People won't be you know, emotional about it forever, but it's a, it's a compelling story. So the Israel story is set up in that way. It's um, set up to have two actors, so Israelis and Palestinians, and one actor is stronger and um, worse, I would say, and one and one actor is weaker and of you know higher moral status, and that makes the story compelling. And what what has to be erased in order for that story to work basically is the entire Middle East. You have to believe that the story is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that is the news framing. When I was a correspondent for the AP, this is between 2006 and the end of 2011. Um, I was a uh, reporter and an editor in the AP Bureau here in Israel. So our story was called Israelis, it, it, we called it Is Pals for short. Every single day we had to move the story called Israelis Palestinians. And it, it encapsulated the conflict as framed as a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. The truth is, though, uh, that as many of you know, most of Israel's wars haven't been against Palestinians. Right. Israel fights wars against Syrians and Iraqis and Jordanians and Lebanese. And Israel's most potent enemy at the moment is Iran. The Iranians are not Palestinian. And the Iranians aren't even Arab. They're Muslim, but they're not Arab. So clearly there's a broader regional conflict going on that isn't Israeli-Palestinian. 
Right. Uh, ask an average Israeli what their story is, their family story. They'll say something like this. My father fought against the Syrians in 1973. My grandfather fought against the Jordanians in 1948. My grandmother uh, is a Jew from Baghdad who got run out of Iraq when the Jews of Iraq were, <laughs> were expelled right. from the country in the, in the early 50s. That's a pretty standard Israeli family story. It has nothing to do with Palestinians. Right. Because it's sort of Middle Eastern. It's a regional story, and you can't understand it if you're zoomed in. You have to zoom out and see the whole Middle East. So the Israeli-Palestinian framing makes my dilemmas as an Israeli completely incomprehensible, but it does make for a more compelling news story. Right, this David and Goliath sort of thing. I mean, people don't realize, I think, that Jerusalem is literally 600 miles by road to Baghdad and 200 miles to Damascus. I mean, San Diego to San Francisco is essentially like driving from Jerusalem to Baghdad. And for some reason, I think as you talk about, like the, the media portrays it, just try to shrink it so small when um, w- without showing the larger picture. And I guess that you, you also talk about how the press, instead of being an observer to the conflict, is actually an actor in the conflict. And I guess that's part of it, right? Absolutely. And touching on something that you just said, one other way that the press works is, and again, for, for reasons that aren't necessarily nefarious, the, the reasons of, of storytelling that I think many people can understand here, um, the stories are split up into easily digestible components. So there's a story about an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and there is a separate story about Iraq, and there is a separate story about Syria. And I think even an intelligent American reader doesn't necessarily understand that Syria and the West Bank are a 90-minute drive from each other. Because it's presented as two completely separate news stories. We have a civil war in Syria and Assad and the Russians and whatever. And we have a completely separate story about the peace process and two states, yes, two states, no. It's the same story for Israelis. It's the same place. It's literally next to each other. I'm sitting a two-hour drive from Syria right now in my my house in Jerusalem. So that's one way that it it works. And I think that part of, you know, getting to your question, the, the the press's conception of what its role is has changed in a pretty dramatic way, certainly over the past 10 years. Um, or, or even more. I mean, I saw it changing when I was inside the world's biggest news organization, which is the AP, at least according to the AP. Um, right. Reuters also claims to be the world's biggest, but I was, you know, an insider and I saw this change. I saw journalists' um, conception of themselves change from describers of reality to shapers of reality, or there was a, a move from analysis to activism. I think. Um, a new generation of journalists kind of repurposed the profession, not as an attempt to explain complicated situations to people far away, but, but as a kind of activism that's, that's meant to achieve justice. And when you start trying to achieve justice with your coverage, you get into a lot of trouble because justice is often subjective and justice for whom and how is exactly is that going to work? But certainly in the Israel story, as I experienced it by the end of my time in the international press, news decisions were being made for reasons that can only be described as activists. So the question about a story would be not, is it accurate, but does it help the right people? And I think many of us became familiar with this kind of reporting around the Trump election and and everything that's followed, where it became clear that much of what used to be mainstream journalism became a kind of activism. And you might agree with the goal of the activism. And in many ways, I agree with the goals of the activism, but I don't agree that journalism can be activism because when you start shaping your story in order to get people to vote against Donald Trump, for example, then no one can believe anything that they read because the information itself is activism. So I'm in favor of activism and politics 
but it has to be based on a, a bedrock of journalism that is accurate description of events in the world. And we no longer have that. So Israel is just one example of something much bigger that's gone wrong in the world of journalism. Right, right. And you talk about like this almost sort of groupthink that starts happening amongst the international journalist base in Israel. All these journalists hang out. They all know each other. The story starts to sound the same. You know, and you're just saying like they're supposed to be the harbingers of truth and they're almost acting like teenagers spreading gossip and don't want to get kicked out of like a, a like a click. Right. So it's sort of like this groupthink mentality that takes hold. Totally. And I think it's it's like any social group. And I'm, it might be that way in Hollywood, too. You know, people hang out and they, have, they kind of dress the same and they have the same politics and then they have the same story ideas. So you'll have like five different projects in development about the same thing at a given time, because that's kind of the vibe at at any given moment. And that's very much the case in the press corps. I think it's actually very dangerous. Ideally, journalists would not even know each other. Ideally, there would be nothing called the press corps. The idea of a corps is very right. problematic, right? That's like a unit marching in unison. That's the opposite of what the press needs to be. The press needs to be ideally 100 really smart, really knowledgeable people who are completely like, you know, willing to go against the common wisdom and have nothing to do with each other. But of course, it can't really work that way because people hang out. So, you know, you'll have all the reporters in this pretty small social world, basically here in Jerusalem. It's the reporters from the international press, NGO people, also Westerners, some diplomatic core type people. That's that's the social world. And they you know, have dinner together and they hang out to get together. They match each other's stories constantly and right. they create the story. So often a reader in America, for example, will see this story from Israel or from somewhere else. And it'll be in the New York Times. It'll be in the Washington Post. It'll be in the BBC. It'll be, you know, uh, everywhere seemingly. Right. And and it seems kind of, it must be true, right? Because I'm getting it from, you know, 10 different directions, but that's just one dinner party in Jerusalem, you know, like right. it's five guys who hang out with each other and have the same sources and write the same story. And that's why you end up getting very similar stories from completely different news outlets wow. on a given day. And it's a, another big problem in the press, right? Because if you had a situation that I described where everyone was knowledgeable and no one knew each other, then reporters would get stuff wrong all the time, but right. they get it wrong in completely different ways. And, they, and some of them would be getting it right. Right. A situation where it's groupthink enforced by kind of political correctness, and um, then everyone is going to get it wrong in exactly the same way. Right. And that's, a, that's exactly what's happened. Right. And you note that when you were working for the AP, the AP had 40 staffers in Israel, which was significantly more than they had in India, China, Russia, and all of Sub-Saharan Africa combined. What is it like now in terms of those numbers? And why is this? Is there just an appetite for news out of Israel in the world? Or what's like this fixation that you need this many journalists covering this tiny story? Right, so that was, that was the number. I mean, we had more people here. This is a story that comprises about 14 million people, Israelis and Palestinians. Israel as a percentage of the world's surface is one one hundredth of right. 1% of the world. And as a percentage of the landmass of the Arab world, it's one fifth of 1%, 0.2%. So we're talking about a very small place. And it was the AP's biggest international bureau at the time. We had more people here than we had in all 50-something countries in sub-Saharan Africa combined. So it's, it's, a, it's always been a story that, and that wasn't, AP wasn't an outlier. I just happened to work there. So, so I know the numbers, but that reflected right. the obsession across the press corps more broadly. Uh, because I'm not an insider anymore, I can't give you exact numbers. The numbers have shrunk across the press corps because the industry has kind of collapsed. So the budgets have really shrunk. And it's a story that, I probably don't need to get into because I'm sure uh, you're aware of it, but you know, social media has really changed the finances of the industry. But in relative terms, it's still covered, you know, to, to an absurd degree, given the size and the, and the scale of violence. I mean, just to give you a number, like last year in Jerusalem, which is really considered the epicenter of the conflict, more journalists here per capita probably than, you know, 
most other cities in the world, maybe any other city in the world with the exception of Washington, DC, a really big foreign press contingent here. So any instance of violence shot here from 50 different angles, the number of violent deaths in this city for any reason last year, any reason, conflict related, domestic homicide, criminal homicide, the number was 24, as far as I can tell. This is a city of a million people or almost a million right. people. It's a city the size of Indianapolis. In Indianapolis last year, there were 270 violent deaths. Wow. So Jerusalem yeah. is 10 times less deadly than Indianapolis, but there's no foreign press coverage in Indianapolis. Right. Like, there's no American press coverage of, right. of Indianapolis. So or like have, a weekend in, in, in South Side of Chicago is probably two weeks in, in a row, you probably get more deaths in the South Side of Chicago than you do in Israel in a year. Right. So Chicago, right. So Chicago is like mid 800s, close to 900, which is really mind boggling. Last year, this is kind of a crass way of comparing conflicts and right. it doesn't tell the whole story. And I apologize because it is crass. It's just, it's interesting because it illustrates the scale. Right. The number of fatalities last year, including this terrible war we had in Gaza in May, is roughly 330 fatalities all, all year, not just from the war. That's the entire fatality number for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict last year. And, you know, that's much, that's, you know, dramatically less than one half of the number for Chicago, right. which Americans do not consider to be a war zone. They might consider it to be dangerous in parts, but it's not, you know, the UN is not heavily invested in, in Chicago. So there's a real... You know, there's a kind of what you're you're getting at. There's really a wrinkle in the Western consciousness or or, or Western attention. What matters and what doesn't matter. This right. place is considered to really matter, even though it's much less violent than America, let alone other wars. And if we're looking at other wars like Syria, um, yeah. half a million people in a decade. You know, Iraq since the American intervention, it's hard to get good numbers, but it's at least three hundred thousand fatalities, which is about three times the number of fatalities in all of the Israel Arab wars over the last century. So right. you have a lot of attention focused on this one place. And the question of why is a good one. I mean, there's a few answers that I can try to give you. Like, why, why is the obsession? I mean, is it is it is it some sort of monetary thing? Is it just people like clicking on this? So they're just feeding like some monetary like this is the news people want to hear about. Or is it something more nefarious than that? And Which is pretty nefarious things. in itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a sad comment on the way things work. But yes, yeah, so that's part of it. And people care about this place and they're you can come up with a few reasons. One is that it's the Holy Land. So people have right. just know about it, right? If you grew up with the Bible, if you just grew up in Western civilization, the name Jerusalem is going to resonate for you more than the name Xinjiang or, or Minneapolis even. You know, like Jerusalem means something, Bethlehem. Um, so it's a, it's a place with resonance. Um, it's a place with people that look like Westerners, which I think is key. People, in the, people in the West, I think people anywhere don't really care that much about people who don't look like them. So, you know, it's hard to get any attention in for a war like Congo, for example, which has about 5 million fatalities, because that's just so distant and there's basically no press covering it. And this is a place that exists in the Western imagination. So that's part of it. Second reason of three, I'll just go through three. Second reason is that it's a really easy story to cover. So, um, you know, as I said, Jerusalem's a lot safer than Indianapolis, but you can right. still kind of pretend to cover a conflict here. So reporters want to cover a conflict, but they don't really want to be in danger necessarily. So this is a pretty good, uh, a pretty good setup. Um, you can say anything you want about the government. I mean, right. Anything you say about the government will not be as extreme as what Israelis say all the time about the government. And it's a pretty rare example of a country in the Middle East where you can say whatever you want and, and you won't be hurt. So it's an easy story. Everyone answers their cell phone. Everyone speaks English. Everyone's super media savvy. It's a really easy story to cover, as I learned when I tried to cover other stories and found that other countries didn't work the same way. Right. And the third reason, and I think it's unavoidable, and I'm just going to touch on it because it, getting into it too deep would, would, I think, take us too far off track. But this is a Jewish country, right? And Jews appear in the Western imagination over many, many centuries as avatars of problems in the world. Right. So, you know, if you're trying to understand 
communism, then, you know, certain section of the population starts thinking of communism as a Jewish problem. So Jewish Bolsheviks, communism as a Jewish plot, very common in the heyday of communism. At the same time, communists conceived of capitalism as Jewish. So the Jews were bankers. Um, So at the same time, the Jews are communists and the Jews are capitalist bankers. Um, You know, give another example, European nationalism in the late 1800s. Jews are, you know, rootless cosmopolitans who have no nation, kind of corrode right. nation states by not having any nation. That's if you're a nationalist. But if you're a universalist, then the Jews are tribal and they're clannish and exclusive. Right. And so the Jews are just a way of illustrating a problem or putting a face on a problem. That's basically the, the role of Jews for, you know, for many, many centuries, leading, going back to the very beginnings of Christianity, when right. the Christian church envisioned Jews as the base of what Christians were not. You know, we believe in the spirit. These people believe in the body. We believe in charity. These people believe in greed and so on and so forth. And we don't even have to go into Germany and other examples. Today, the problem that animates liberals is inequality. That's the problem that that people care about, rightly so in my opinion, that is the problem. And the value that you're supposed to uphold is human rights. And I agree with that too. I think that is the value that we're supposed to uphold. You can't evade, um, you can't avoid noticing that for many people, a shocking number of people in the West, the prime example of inequality or the prime example of human rights violation is a country called Israel, which right. is a small Jewish country and the world's only Jewish country. And you can either believe that that's a coincidence or you know, believe that it's part of a kind of Western storytelling. Right. Age old anti-Semitism, right? I, would, I avoid the word anti-Semitism for a couple of reasons. One is that it was invented by an anti-Semite. Like the word right. anti-Semite was invented by someone who hated Jews and wanted that to sound scientific. So sometimes we think that anti-Semitism is kind of like COVID. It's it's binary. You either have it or you don't. You're an anti-Semite right. or you're not. But it's 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 a bit trickier than that. I think a lot of people have this kind of mental virus where they see a problem and then the first place they look as an illustration of the problem is Jews or Israel. A good example over the past couple of weeks was Ukraine, when a lot of people were feeling that the West wasn't doing enough to support Ukraine. And of course, people are still buying energy from Russia, you know, including Germany. People are buying, you know, there's still people have the sense that we're not doing enough to help the Ukrainians. And for a couple of news cycles, the story was that Israel wasn't doing enough to help Ukrainians. Right. If there was really a focus on that, which doesn't make sense as an analysis of the world, because this is really, again, one one hundredth of one percent of the world. Right. But it does make sense as a kind of storytelling. It's very hard to understand global problems. The world is so complicated. It, it you know, it's impossible to understand. So you need to simplify it by focusing on one group of people that represents the problems you're concerned with. Right, that, right. That role is played by Jews, and it's it's a historic role. It didn't start with the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. Right. No, that's a very good point. And, you know, I think, you know, the journalists seem to have gone from, instead of telling, you know, reporting the news, it almost becomes like critiquing Israel. And they're more about condemning Israel and almost trying to delegitimize the country. You know, new reporters, you talked about in one of your articles how they may not have experience in the region or the knowledge of the country. You talked about that when you were in Georgia. But like a recent example, I think, when it pertains to Israel is the New York Times New Jerusalem bureau chief, a writer named Patrick Kingsley. He started his job in January 2021, um, having not really covered the country or lived in the country to that point. And within nine months, he puts out this lengthy article that he's pinned to his Twitter profile ever since about how Israeli, Israelis are all unhappy and they hate each other. And yet there's poll after poll showing like Israeli Israel is the ninth happiest country in the world. So how does a reporter like this get away with this sort of thing? And like, you know, what is the agenda here? Is it just he's trying to delegitimize the country? Because clearly 
you know, that doesn't represent really what Israel is about. Right. So I can't address uh, Patrick Kingsley specifically. I've never, I've never met him. I'm sure he's a, a, a lovely guy, but um, um, Americans would never accept as an expert on America, someone who doesn't speak English. Right. Even that idea would strike Americans as ludicrous. Like if I was standing on a street in LA and I couldn't understand the signs and I couldn't speak to an American in her language and I couldn't, you know, I never understood an American news broadcast. The idea that I could be an expert on America would, people would if I presented myself in that way, people would crack up. But the people who explain the world to Americans are that guy for the most part. And that's right. a good example of the one that you just gave. People who just come in, have no experience, no relevant language skills. So they don't understand what's being said around them. Right. And obviously they're not experts on the country. What they're experts on is the story that their editors expect. Right. They know how to deliver that. And that's you know, my experience in, in Georgia in 2008, which was one of the previous incarnations of a Russian aggression against you know, a neighbor right. out there. And I, just, I realized that you know, I had been sent to Georgia kind of like these guys are sent to Israel. I didn't know Georgian or even really know that was a language. I had a very vague sense of what was going on. I didn't have a map and I didn't really know, you know, anything about anything. And yet I was expected to be the Western world's eyes on the ground. And I realized that the game was just bluff. Like I was just bluffing. I had no idea what I was talking about, but I was supposed to report with confidence. And um, I noticed that my colleagues were uh, basically doing the same thing. We're all kind of copying each other, making sure we're, and that, that's really what it looks like. So the foreign press corps here is, is that more or less, what they're giving you is not an accurate depiction of events. What they're giving you is a carefully curated story that resonates with consumers of news. Right. That is a completely different talent. It's a talent, by the way, it's not that easy, but um, it's much more a storytelling talent. It's much closer to what you do in Hollywood than right. it is you know, to actually an analyzing country, which is very confusing and like any country contradictory. So there are many different things going on at, at a given time. You have you know, conflicts here, the conflict's real and there's real suffering here. And at the same time, Israel is always ahead of the United States and the happiness index that you mentioned, ninth in the last one, America is usually around 17. Israel's always ahead of the UK and, and the US, which doesn't make any sense, right? Um, except that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange and kind of contradictory place that needs to be understood by people who know it. Right. Not by people who are dropped in to, you know, just to tell a story. It's kind of like the, the difference between geologists and miners, right? To be a geologist, you need to study for a long time and you're going to go out to look at a piece of ground and you're going to come back with a lot of very complicated information that might not be immediately comprehensible to the average person, right? Geology, it's really complicated what's in the ground. If you're a gold miner, you look at a piece that doesn't take a lot of training, you look at the ground and you pick out the gold. Like that's right. what you need to do. You're extracting gold. So someone who really understands a country is a geologist. You have to study it for years. You're going to come back with complicated information that, that is often contradictory and hard to understand. Most of the correspondents are gold miners. They know the story that they want. In the case of Israel, it's a story about moral perfidy, basically. It's a right. story about a country misbehaving. Um, it's a story about Jews misbehaving, which of course has deep resonance that a lot of people don't want to admit. And that's the story. And that's the gold, right? So that glints, you can just pull it out of the ground. You don't need a lot of training to extract that kind of gold. So these right. guys come for a couple of years, completely misunderstand the country, and then move on to misunderstand some other country. Right. So they have the narrative, and they're just trying to, you know, find stories that fit that narrative. I mean, but but so this goes beyond the groupthink of the journalists actually there. This is the editors and the owners of these media outlets, um, because they're the ones that are allowing this, and I guess giving the directive. So. Um, you know, don't they have any rules of objectivity? And does this talk more about the institutions they write for than what is really happening in Israel? Does this talk really more about the agendas of the B like the BBC or the New York Times than even these journalists? 
Sure. First of all, I, I almost never blame the individual journalist. And that's something that I, I learned at the AP when my byline appeared on all kinds of different stories. But it's not being a journalist at a big organization isn't like it isn't like driving a car. It's like shoveling coal on a train. Like the track, the track is laid, you know, like other people are giving you the story and curating it and you're shoveling coal into the engine. You're getting the pieces of information that make the story tick, but you're not writing it. So, you know, at the AP, I, can, I couldn't come in with some crazy story about what was going on here. Um, like what I told you just now about this being a middle, you know, being a Middle Eastern conflict with dozens of actors that needs to be understood in regional terms. Right. I, I that was beyond my power as a journalist. So I, I don't tend, I don't usually criticize an individual journalist because I think these problems are systemic to use a word that is, you know, in fashion these days. Right. Um, it's certainly organizational, but it's bigger than that, right? Because the different news organizations match each other. So it's clearly not a, a malfunction in one organization. It's a broader kind of thought virus in the West. People want this story. This is a this is a, a kind of a, a, a blockbuster news story, the Israel story. Other right. news stories peak and fade. So you know, uh, remember when, when I was growing up, it was the former Yugoslavia. That, that war was big for a couple of years, but then people lost interest. And that's an average news story. Usually, interest peaks and fades within maybe a week or two. Ukraine is a is a unique example, but that one is also not going to last forever. Israel is always a news story. It right. never really fades. It's always there, even when almost nothing is going on here. So it's really, there's something powerful about this story that people want. And the news organizations sense that and they give the readers what, what they want rather than doing what I think they should do, which is, you know, if you're claiming to be offering a rational analysis of events on planet Earth, which is what I understand the news to be, then you can't, you know, pander to people's, uh, you know, uh, right. whatever, you know, story that they, they're hankering after. You have to tell them what's, what's going on. And if you're covering this story more than you're covering India, that makes no sense as a rational analysis. But the organizations are, are willing to do it because people... People want this story, and that has increasingly become um, even more extreme because of the way the news model has changed. So people are now much more beholden to subscribers. Right. And, you know, we can go into that, but it's much less about ads now and much more about subscribers. So you have to pander to your hardcore subscribers. And, right. and it reflects itself in all kinds of news stories, as we know, not just the Israel story, um, but it certainly includes the Israel story because the hardcore subscribers expect a certain kind of right. story. And by the way, that's true of right-wing right media as much as it's true of left-wing media, even if right. the story is a little bit different. Right, create these sort of like echo chambers. Um, so just shifting a little bit, you talked about this earlier on about the relationship between the journalists and the NGOs and how some journalists literally go from working at, and you know, as journalists to working for these NGOs, such as Oxfam that condemn Israel. Can you just talk a little bit more about that relationship? And it almost appears like they're working hand in hand. It appears that way because they are, and um, part of that is is economic. As the as the finances of the journalists have you know plummeted, um, the vacuum has been filled in many cases by these very powerful NGOs that have enormous budgets. And a good example is Human Rights Watch or Amnesty, which are active here and which the journalists see as part of their scene. So you know, there's a, a big question for journalists, although it's usually not spelled out: Who do you cover and who do you quote? So uh, an organization, you know, the big NGOs like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty will, will never be covered. Right? No one's going to do an investigation of the finances of Human Rights Watch um, or how they, you know, how the activities reflect the interests of the people who fund it. People will not do that story in the mainstream news business, but they will quote their reports because those are friends. So you quote friends, but you don't cover them. Right. And, um, and, you know, if you're a journalist, you don't have a lot of time. You don't have a big budget. You might not understand what's going on. So you're susceptible to someone coming to you and saying, here's a report. 
It's written in your language. It has a summary of two pages at the beginning, and it's full of statistics that look scientific. Um, you know, this is a story. So it's a story you can write without leaving your office. It's a story you can bang out in a day. Your editors will be happy with the story because it matches their politics. And, you know, every, everyone is happy except the truth, which, you know, has nothing to do with what most of these organizations are writing. So that's a key dynamic. Again, not just in Israel. It's a key dynamic across the board. It's more visible here because this story is such a circus. But, right. um, but, but it's, happening, it's happening more and more as the, the role of these kind of powerful NGOs is kind of a complex of NGOs, certainly on the liberal side. It's that way on the conservative side, too, although I, I know less about it, where... Um, you know, people uh, will report their, you know, reports without looking into it too closely, maybe because they agree with them politically, maybe because they hope one day to cross the lines and work for them because journalism, you know, doesn't have much of a future. So maybe you're right. kind of angling for that job um, at Amnesty or at, you know, or, or, right. or, or, or that's very much part of the kind of dynamics under the table of how the stories are. Right. So they don't even uh, investigate these reports. Like Amnesty puts out a report, Israel's an apartheid state. Like a journalist, you'd expect them to investigate the truth of the report. They sort of take what these NGOs say is face value and just sort of, it almost feels like they're, they're just spewing out what's in the report with no sort of other question, uh, you know, any questioning of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, but it's because the journalists Again, with, with exceptions, it's not everyone, but by and large, the journalists have come to see themselves as the press arm of that world. Wow. So there is, you know, the world of the of the right people who are fighting for justice, and that right. might include activists and these and NGOs and 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 the, the role of the journalists is to be the spokespeople for that world. Right. Not question. Right. That's a complete misconception of, of what journalism is, but that is how many people see it in the in the industry because they they see their job as achieving justice, not as describing reality, because sometimes if you describe reality, it, it plays into the hands of the wrong people. So if you understand, for example, you know, what I said about the regional context of this, um, of this conflict, where there are 6 million Jews in one corner of the Middle East, and in an Arab world, that's 300 million people, and in an Islamic world, that's one and a half billion people. If you explain it like that, then you might have sympathy for the wrong people. Right. So it can't be explained like that. It has to be explained as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict where you will have sympathy for the right people. So that's the way to understand much of the coverage, unfortunately. It's a kind of right. activism that is presented as journalism, but is very different from what would have been considered journalism 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And almost taking that a step further, you talk about how, um, you know, the NGO monitor, you discuss how there was a rule not to quote that group or see comment from them. Is this unusual? And what other groups are sort of blacklisted in this way? Like, are any Palestinian NGOs blacklisted? Or was it, we do not quote, we do not see, you know, and, you know, take any, any reports from NGO Monitor? This, right. So this was, you're referring to something that I wrote in that article that was published during, or right at the very end of a round of violence in Gaza in the summer of 2014. And, and one, it was kind of two parts of the same argument, one in Tablet and one in the Atlantic. And one of the Fact in there, I was discussing my time at the AP, which had, I started pretty, you know, pretty happy about working for the American press. I kind of had a very Woodward and Bernstein sense of what the American press was. And um, I came out pretty cynical. But um, um, one thing that I wrote there was that there had been, you know, we had been covering these NGO reports or, or quoting these NGO reports, really, and reports from the United Nations, rather than trying to pick them apart and just to treat these groups as political actors that needed to be covered and criticized like any other actor, like the Israeli government or like the Palestinian government or like Hamas. I mean, we have to understand what the motivations are and understand that everyone's selling a kind of bullshit, right? right. From the Israelis across the board. 
that's the role of the journalists. So, but we weren't treating it like that, right? It was clear to us that the Israelis were selling bullshit, which is true a lot of the time. Um, and but it, but these groups kind of had a halo around them. So we would just, you know, you know, kind of bow down when we'd get their reports. And um, there was a, a, there is an Israeli group called NGO Monitor, which has tried. It's very much an Israeli group, but you know they wouldn't claim to be some you know neutral observer of the of the whole thing. But they have tracked the world of NGOs, and they have very informa interesting information on funding, like who funds these groups, who, where does all the money come from? There's a huge right. campaign being run against Israel. It's not running itself. There are tens of millions of dollars every year running this thing. Where does it come from? So they right. track things like that, and they will often respond when these groups put out reports. There was a ban in the AP Bureau at that time. So we're talking about 2009, 2010, more or less, um, against quoting this group. And it was the only time that I, I had heard of us being not allowed to quote a group. Wow. The, the goal, I think, was not to allow us to set up a he said, she said situation when the, when the NGOs were concerned. So if an NGO like Human Rights Watch comes in and says Israel is you know, the Death Star, then we, we shouldn't be able to quote an Israeli group that says Human Rights Watch is, you know, selling you a crock of BS. Right. And these that are all problematic things with NGOs. Then it just, right, then it just right, that, okay, right. this NGO says one thing and this NGO says another thing. But that's not the, 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 the picture we wanted. We wanted right. to quote these groups as God's truth, which more or less is done to this day. You know, you have an excellent example in that same article of some of this biased coverage when you discuss the events at Al-Quds University and by the way, those rallies occurred just this past year. They're still going on and they're never covered by the mainstream press. Can you just discuss that incident and, and what it tells us? So this is from around the same time. Um, a friend of mine passed through Pasadena University, which was a, you know, a well-known institution that had a partnership with Bard. So not some kind of uh, you know, marginal, um, marginal institution. And, and he happened upon this rally where people were... Um, kind of dressed kind of dressed in military uniforms holding rifles and giving nazi salutes um and he took a picture of it and um because this school was partnered with bard it seemed like a pretty interesting uh story and um uh, the picture was sent to around it was passed around the international press it was sent to the ap no one touched the story until um um you know this is i guess Eight years ago now, so my memory is going is going a bit. But um, the, the the story only became a story when the American partner cut off relations with um, with the university. So um, uh, it's an example of of something that's clearly a news story, like it's clearly of interest, but it doesn't serve the right actor. That, that but it can't, so it wouldn't be covered when you know certain things are, are stories and certain things are not stories. If Israel builds a hundred apartments in a West Bank settlement. That is a big news story. If 100 rockets are smuggled into Gaza, that is not a news story. There are certain things that are stories and certain things that aren't. And in the example of, of the, that rally at Al-Quds, which again is not, like you said, it's not uncommon. It's things that happen and it's things that are you know, quite shocking and, and worth seeing, if only to understand what Israelis are afraid about. So I don't think you have to buy you know, all of Israel's policies. I certainly don't. I've always been an Israeli more of the left and I have a lot to say about government policy, but we have to be able to at least understand Israeli fears. So if you see right. these photographs, which are taken in the city where I live, taken about, a, you know, there's no traffic. It's a 20 minute drive from where I'm sitting right now of guys, these guys, you know, in, in, in this very threatening pose, literally giving Nazi salutes, you know, that, that makes it clearer why we're worried. And, right. and for that same reason, it can't be shown. Right. And you almost, you also, I remember you talking about how one AP journalist heard about the 2008 Ulmer peace plan offer. 
I mean, that's a major story, right? That, you know, Omer offered even more than Ahud Barak at Camp David. And yet the bosses at AP told him just to ignore the story, right? That, that happened at the very end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And probably of all the details that I gave in those uh, exposés, that one probably made the biggest stink. I used it because I think it's an, an easy to understand example. There were actually worse examples, but that one is kind of easy to understand. At the very end of 2008, Ehud Olmert, who was a centrist, um, made a pretty dramatic peace offer to the Palestinians, which would have included almost all of the West Bank, all of Gaza, and an international power sharing arrangement for the old city of Jerusalem, where the old city with all of its holy sites would be run by an international consortium that would have included the Americans and the Saudis and the Palestinians and the Jordanians, and of course the Israelis and a few others. And this was so far reaching that I think most Israelis probably wouldn't have voted for it, but it was an offer made by the, by the Israeli prime minister. And it at the very least showed that Israel was trying to solve the problem, that Israel was right. making a good faith effort to compromise in, in a way that the international community expects Israel to compromise. And, and I supported that. Of course, I've always supported any compromise basically that would bring us closer to peace. And um, the problem with that story was that it made Israel look reasonable. And the Palestinians who rejected the offer look maybe like they weren't out to solve the conflict or, or were not as eager as they could be to solve the conflict. And two of our reporters had that story at the time before it had been reported. They actually, you know, they, they'd seen details of the offer. We had the, we had the details of, of that offer and the story was shelved. They weren't allowed to publish it. And one of the journalists who was involved uh, later came out after I published the details and said that it was the biggest you know, travesty that he'd witnessed in 40 years in the news business, because of course it's a news story. Of course that's a news story. Director of our coverage peace process, and that's a news story. So the only, that's a good example of how political considerations replace journalistic considerations. Right. Right. So let's discuss the coverage of Hamas and reporting inside Gaza is like. Um, You know, you discuss how Hamas understands Western media and sort of feeds into the preconceived notion of Israel. So they'll, you know, so we'll tell reporters, you know, we're really pragmatic. What we, you know, ignore the thousands of rockets. We're really pragmatic. You know, what is the relationship between the media and Hamas, particularly in Gaza? Right. So there's a starting, you know, with a broader lens, there are deep and very problematic um, issues with the way the Western press functions in closed societies. And it's, it could be Gaza or it could be North Korea, um, where the AP opened a bureau when I was at the AP, um, or Iran. So often Western reporters will function in these places and will not tell their readers under which restrictions they're working because they're not allowed to say under which restrictions they're working. So you'll have the impression that you're getting coverage from Iran, for example. And you will not know that the reporter understands that there are red lines that he or she cannot cross and there are areas that you are not allowed to cover. And the same is true in North Korea, where coverage is a farce, of course. Um, and the same is true in, in Gaza, which um, you know, where reporters function under threat, explicit or implicit, from, from Hamas, and where almost the entirety of news coverage is carried out not by foreign journalists most of the time, but by local people who live in Gaza who live under Hamas rule and who will not cross Hamas, quite understandably, I completely get it. I don't think you know journalism is worth anyone's life. And I understand why they have to cooperate with, with Hamas directives, which require, you know, for example, um, not showing rocket fire from civilian neighborhoods. Right. Uh, so you'll get the impression that Israel's attacking civilian neighborhoods for no reason, because you will not, you'll see the rubble of the house, but you will not see the rocket that was launched from the house you know, five right. minutes earlier. 
and none of this is to justify everything that, that Israel does. I, I, this probably doesn't need to be said, but of course Israel should be criticized as much as any other country. And I have a lot of criticism of it myself. So I'm not giving a blanket exemption you know, to Israel or saying that the Palestinians are bad. I, I don't think that at all. Um, I just think that people don't understand the mechanics of the coverage and the reporters in Gaza have been teamed um, both because of what I mentioned, because of the threats and because ideologically they align with the story that presents Palestinians as victims and Israelis as victimizers. So when right. Hamas comes at them and says, you may not show us launching rockets, they don't have a hard time agreeing because their story anyway doesn't require them to show Hamas showing rockets. Right. Right. Because anyway, what they're really looking for is civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. Another rule, by the way, is that, and I remember this from the 2014, where I talked to a cameraman who said that they, the cameramen were lined up outside the biggest hospital in Gaza, in Gaza City, Shifa Hospital. And when civilian casualties were brought in, they filmed them as they came into the hospital. And when military casualties came in, a Hamas guy was standing next to them and he would gesture to, to them to turn off their cameras. Right. Because then people might understand that this was a war and that at least half of the fatalities were military. Right. That's not the impression that Hamas wanted to give, of course. And it's a big part of right. the... So it's the, the Gaza health ministry, you know, is treated always like a reliable source like uh, all reporting during the conflicts between Israel and Hamas, they, you, you will see every journalist report the Gaza Health Ministry, which essentially is Hamas. Um, and as you're talking about, no soldier is ever killed. Everybody's a civilian in their estimation. You know, so what sort of like stories can journalists get out or is it essentially impossible to get out any sort of nuggets of truth or that. And why do they quote the Gaza Health Ministry? Like, is that just what we're talking about? It's just, they have a narrative and they're treating, you know, this, this, this ministry of Hamas, this mouthpiece of Hamas, just as something that people in the West will just take as some, um, you know, uh, uh, reliable source of reporting. Worse than that, because often you'll get from Gaza, UN numbers. People will cite UN numbers. They'll say, the UN, according to the UN, the death toll is X. But in fact, the UN is getting it from the Gaza Health Ministry, which right. is Hamas, right? So there's an ideological player feeding you information, and then you have to make a decision as a journalist: Are you going to, you know, put it out there? Are you or not? And most journalists do um, and need to be responsible for what they're doing. What they're doing is passing on information that's ideological. So the number might be right, and the numbers are often heartbreaking. But the, the division between civilians and fighters is never right. Because the trick is always to make your civilian casualties look as high as possible. And then usually what, what has happened in rounds of violence in Gaza is that a month or two or a week or two or after the interest subsides, Hamas comes out and says, yes, we lost 700 fighters. But th the story has already been, been written. The stories that are easy to write from here are stories that present Palestinians as victims and Israelis as oppressors because that story will not get you into trouble, right? Israel won't do anything to you. Israel's a democracy. They can't do anything to reporters. Right. You can say whatever you want. However, if you write a story, for example, about the Hamas military array that has been constructed under the civilian landscape in Gaza, um, which necessarily means that the next war is going to have a lot of civilian casualties, and, that, and Hamas has done this with help from the Iranians, if you write that story in Gaza, you will never get back into Gaza if, if you get out. You know, you can write it once you're out, but you're never coming back in. Or a good example in 2014 war was these two Indian reporters who, um, who filmed a launch which you're not allowed to do. There was one of the amazing things that summer was that you were constantly seeing Israeli airstrikes, but you weren't seeing any launches. So hundreds of rockets were hitting Israel, but they weren't being launched. It was right. miraculous. <laughs> and then two uh, Indian reporters just paid, pointed their camera out the window of their hotel room and 
there was a Hamas crew right outside the hotel where the journalists were staying, launching a rocket in the middle of the day. And the, the, to their credit, the reporters filmed it, uh, were smart enough to get out of, out of Gaza before they broadcast it. But um, you know, I'm pretty sure they never, wow. they never got back in. So, so Israel, during this recent May conflict, they destroyed the press building in the last war used by Hamas. Um, and, you know, they gave warning and made everybody get out of the building before they did this. Um, did you, th- these reporters, in your opinion, know Hamas was using the building? Because they all claimed that they had no idea that Hamas was in there and, and Israel eventually proved evidence that there were. Right. So that was one of the kind of events that garnered mo- a lot of international attention during the war. In retrospect, I'm not sure that the Israeli military made the right decision in taking the building down. There's some debate about it. And even in Israel, some people in the army say, okay, there, there was a Hamas military asset in the building. That's There's no doubt that that's true. But still, it wasn't worth the international fallout of right. taking it. But do you think the journalists knew it, Hamas was active in there? I, I don't know this. I don't know this for a fact. I haven't been at the AP in a while. And I, you know, I work on the Israeli side and not in the Gaza Bureau. I would be very, and we have to remember, the people in the Gaza Bureau are Gazans. It's not, people are, might be imagining like 20 Americans sitting at computers. No, it's not, it's not foreigners. It's people from Gaza. It's Palestinians from Gaza. Did those people know that Hamas is in the building? I can, I think we can say with a high, um, high, you know, like, of, great right. certainty that, that the answer is, is yes. Did their bosses in New York know that Hamas is in the building? I don't know. Did the locals right. know? My bet is that the locals know. Right, right. And who creates headlines for articles? For instance, this last week, terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. This is the headline Reuters used. Israeli forces shoot dead Palestinian after Tel Aviv bar attack. So no mention of a terrorist attack, no mention that attack was attacker was a Palestinian or that he shot and killed, you know, Israelis. Like who writes those headlines? Is that the journalists? Is that the editors at home? And, you know, because uh, th- those are almost more, no one even has time to read articles anymore, but the headlines, you know, they make themselves all around social media and around the world very quickly. I think the, the headlines are really, they really show the reflex because the headlines are cranked out really fast, right? In, in the current news environment, you get the story out really quick. If it's AP and Reuters, we were racing Reuters to be the first. So you just crank out the headlines. It really shows your, your reflex. And the reflex is not to assign um, agency to Palestinians. That's right. that reflex. So, you know, you'll see rockets fired from Gaza or, or more likely you'll see, you know, Israel strikes Gaza after rockets fired. And it's not exactly clear who's firing the rockets. It's clear that Israel's striking, but it's not clear who's firing the rockets. And that headline that you gave was a good example, right? There's there's an attack in a bar. Who carries out the attack? You know, is it the Palestinian who was killed or not? So they fudge the tenses and, you know, the passive and active language so that the headline is makes it impossible to understand exactly what what happened again i don't think this is like a nefarious plot so i don't think people are sitting in a room saying oh how can we draft it it just shows the reflex of the people involved in the story there's a story that people want and and you know just as in hollywood there's an there's an interest in giving people the story that they want and this has been perceived as a story that people want and they're not going to contradict it and that's true of the israel story and it's true of stories in american politics but you're not going to get a story you're unlikely to see a story in the new york times that says republicans really have a point on this one <laughs> because that right. doesn't the, uh, the agenda and on Fox News, you're unlikely to see a story that says, well, you know, Biden is really doing a good job, solid job. Um, right. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. Things are so polarized that, you know, the information ecosystems are incredibly consistent and completely 
predictable and separate from each other. Right. It almost makes you think, you know, does the world really care about the Palestinians or just hate Israel and the Jews? And we're talking about Syria earlier. You know, an estimated 3,500 Palestinians were killed in Syria, 1,500 in prison, you know, hundreds went missing, hundreds of thousands displaced, and almost no coverage of that. And, you know, obviously anything that happens in Israel just gets an extraordinary amount of coverage. So, I mean, the story really is, is it, do you think, in your opinion, more about hating Israel and maybe the Jews, as opposed to really covering, like, the story about the Palestinians? There's no question that in the Israel story, the actor is Israel. That's the active side and Palestinians in the story. Again, this is kind of a, a fictional construct that serves as serves the same purpose as the plot of a movie. The, the Palestinians appear as a passive victim. That's the, that's the way the story has been set up. So you have the princess dragon uh, you know, dynamic in the story. So the actor is Israel. The story that the, the actor, the side that people are interested in that gets analyzed, criticized is, is Israel and the other side much less. So you don't hear a lot of analyses of Palestinian society or what makes it tick because that's not really of interest. What's really of interest here is a morality story that stars Israeli Jews who are you know, supposed to be moral, but are failing in many ways to you know, maintain right. the morality that we'd expect. Um, that's the story. So you know, whatever facts play into the story get uh, included and inflated and whatever facts might contradict that story get laid down or left out entirely. Right, all right, just to take a couple quick audience questions because we've actually had tons of them. Um, to start with, uh, do you know of any journalists who have changed their views after spending a certain amount of time in Israel? Um, I'm not in, I guess, in which, in which way? <laughs> right. I guess change their views in understanding, uh, being somewhat more sympathetic to Israel, I'm assuming they're asking. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see that sometimes. It's not, it's not that common because the journalists who come here tend to live in the social world of journalists. So I've seen it happen numerous times in the other direction. We have people coming in here pretty open-minded. And you meet them at the beginning of their time here and, you know, they'll talk to people like me and they'll be trying to understand it. And, they'll, you know, they'll be kind of positively disposed or at least open minded about what's going on. But if you spend a few months in the social bubble that creates the story, your views are your views become those of your peers. And I've seen it happen again and again. You know, you live in that bubble. People speak English. They're nice to you. They give you these reports. They feed you information. They'll set you up for, you know, with, for dates. You know, they'll invite you to dinner. And you assume the views of that of that world, which is, you know, the world of the international left, the world of people who have certain views on many different topics, um, including including Israel. So I've seen it go that way. There are a few examples of people who on the other way, often those people are very quiet about what they think, right? Because if you expect to have a career in journalism, you can't really come out against the common wisdom. Israel is just one part of that. You know, if you have the wrong views on you know, I don't know, gender or politics, you know, you're, you're gonna have a hard time getting a job. So people who have contrarian ideas, keep them to themselves by and large. Right. So a couple of quick other ones. Why didn't the New York Times cover the recent amnesty report uh, that feliciously labeled Israel apartheid state? Do you think the NGOs just repeating this live overplayed their hand and cried wolf too many times or any idea why they didn't give it any coverage? It's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I was an op-ed writer at the Times for a while, and I'm not anymore, so I don't have any internal, you know, uh, window into the workings of the, of the paper. I'm not sure why they didn't report it. It's kind of interesting that they didn't. Maybe it's a sign of, you know, kind of solid, uh, solid news, news judgment. Not every report from a human rights from a human rights group is news, and not every group that calls itself a human rights group is actually a human rights group, right? Just as you know, uh, um, not every person calling himself a journalist is a journalist. There's a lot of, you know, the, the meaning of these words has really changed. And 
we need to be kind of suspicious about, about everything. There are a lot of, I, I kind of feel like in 2022, we're, we're in the night of the living dead a bit, where you have these institutions that once meant something in the 90s, they've been completely repurposed and yet they still exist. So, you know, Amnesty International, that meant something in the 1990s. It's something completely different now. The New York Times, same thing. Um, you know, the Republican Party, it was one thing, it's a different thing with the Democratic Party. Uh, the ACLU meant one thing in the 90s, means something completely different now. So we have to kind of be not credulous about, you know, everyone shoving a report at us. And maybe that was a, you know, consideration at the times. I wish I it's very, It is very interesting why they didn't, since they seem to cover every other time Israel's labeled a part of state. The other, uh, here's another question about how media seems to almost present the Palestinians as a monolith and they don't really discuss like Arab Israelis who, when there was talk, even the Trump plan, which is, you know, no longer in existence at this moment, you know, Arab Israelis said, we don't want our towns being become part of a new Palestinian state or an Arab Israelis poll after poll have shown they actually prefer to be, um, you know, identify as Arab Israelis and not just Palestinians. Um, but the media coverage doesn't seem to, you know, sort of tell their story. You know, why is that? And is there a way to change that? I think the basic reason is that it, it complicates things. We need a simple right. story, right? Arab Israelis, people who like being in Israel or who feel that they're Palestinian, but would still rather be citizens of Israel. I mean, it's very, very complicated. I've been here for 27 years now, and you know, the country still shocks me all the time with its weird wrinkles. So, but that doesn't work for a news story. You need Israelis and Palestinians, and they have to behave in predictable ways. And they have to be as monolithic as possible just to make a compelling news story. Because if it's really, really complicated, people are going to lose interest. And I think that's that's the basic explanation for, right. for what's going on. And so just final question, what can people listening here do to affect change and to counter this media bias? Oh, man, I have a depressing answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, you know, what I think people can do in this story and in any story is to keep their eyes on, firmly on reality. And, and, and understand that much of what is presented as news coverage is actually, you know, ideological fantasy. And it's an unfortunate facet of life in 2022, but it's just something that every citizen in a democracy has to deal with right now. We're just, we're in a blizzard of disinformation and it's coming from all sides, not just from the side that we don't like. And that's certainly true in the Israel story. And I don't, I don't really see a way to change it until the institutions are, you know, until new institutions arise. Um, or until, you know, there's some kind of reckoning in the journalism world. Again, not just in Israel, the, the conception of journalism has changed. And as long as all the journalists, right and left, are activists pushing activist agendas, we won't be able to understand anything. So I try to read as little daily news as possible and you know, get as involved, you know, in Twitter as little as possible and, and read as many books as possible. Make sure to be reading coverage produced by people who speak the languages of the countries that they cover. Um, you know, I have these rules of thumb. I have individual journalists who I follow who I think are really good, um, but it really requires you to navigate. You know, it, it very. You have to. Everyone has to make personal decisions. We have to arrive at a way of figuring things out, arrive at the sources that we trust, and and understand that much of what's being pushed at us can't be believed. And there's just no way around that right now. And I wish I had a better you know, a better uh, solution. I wish I could tell you, click on this news site, you know, and believe everything you, you hear, you see there, or, you know, donate to this cause and they'll fix everything. I think the only solution right now is to be very, very suspicious consumers of any information that, you know, it's our eyeballs. Right. You know, and I would say, and I add to that, everybody listening is share articles that are factual with friends. You know, if send it not just people in your own echo chamber, a bubble, but if, if there's good articles and factual articles about a story, 
sometimes you need to share that because a lot of times those, you know, those will not be what's populated. People might not see a, a story in Haaretz or J Post because they're just looking at the New York Times or the Guardian. And so, you know, I think everybody these days can do a good job of sharing them, whether it's tweeting them out or, you know, emailing them privately to your network. Um, anyhow, thank you, Maddie. Uh, thank you to everyone joining us today. We're going to be taking a week off for Passover and wish everyone watching a happy Passover. Uh, when we come back in two weeks, we'll be joined by Professor Eugene Kontrovovich to discuss Israel and international law. Uh, make sure to sign up for that conversation and all our discussions and support our work at ccfpeace.com. You can donate there as well. Once again, ccfpeace.com. Uh, before we go, where can people find you on social media and learn more about your work? Yeah, I have on, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have all of the necessary uh, social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook. I have a website. It's just my name, Matty Friedman. And, uh... Yeah, pretty easy. Perfect. And make sure everybody go check out the book, purchase the book. Uh, I think everybody will find it really fascinating. Um, anyhow, we hope to see everybody at future events. Please stay safe. Thank you, Mati. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. Take care.